Section 20 of Our National Parks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in June 2021. Our National Parks by John Muir. Chapter 9, Part 4. Beneath the smoke clouds of the suffering forest, we again push southward, descending a side gorge of the East Fork Canyon and climbing another into new forests and groves not a whit less noble. Brownie, the meanwhile, had been resting while I was weary and sleepy with almost ceaseless wanderings, giving only an hour or two each night or day to sleep in my log home. Waymaking here seemed to become more and more difficult, impossible in common phrase for four-legged travellers. Two or three miles was all the day's work as far as distance was concerned. Nevertheless, just before sundown we found a charming campground with plenty of grass and a forest to study that had felt no fire for many a year. The camp hollow was evidently a favorite home of bears, on many of the trees at the height of six or eight feet their autographs were inscribed in strong free-flowing strokes on the soft bark where they had stood up like cats to stretch their limbs using both hands every claw a pen the handsome curved lines of their writing take the form of remarkably regular interlacing pointed arches producing a truly ornamental effect I looked and listened, half expecting to see some of the riders, alarmed and withdrawing, from the unwanted disturbance. Brownie also looked and listened, for mules fear bears instinctively, and have a very keen nose for them. When I turned him loose, instead of going to the best grass, he kept cautiously near the campfire for protection, but was careful not to step on me. The great starry night passed away in deep peace, and the rosy morning sunbeams were searching the grove ere I woke from a long blessed sleep. The breadth of the sequoia belt here is about the same as on the north side of the river, extending, rather thin and scattered in some places, among the noble pines from near the main forest belt of the range, well back towards the frosty peaks, where most of the trees were growing on moraines, but little changed as yet. Two days scramble above Bear Hollow, I enjoyed an interesting interview with deer. Soon after sunrise, a little company of four came to my camp in a wild garden embedded in chaparral, and after much cautious observation, quietly began to eat breakfast with me. Keeping perfectly still, I soon had their confidence, and they came so near I found no difficulty, while admiring their graceful manners and gestures, in determining what plants they were eating, thus gaining a far finer knowledge and sympathy than comes by killing and hunting. Indian summer gold, with scarce a whisper of winter in it, was painting the glad wilderness in richer and yet richer colors as we scrambled across the south canyon into the basin of the tule. Here the big tree forests are still more extensive, and furnished abundance of work in tracing boundaries and gloriously crowned ridges up and down, back and forth, exploring, studying, admiring, while the great measureless days passed on and away uncounted. But in the calm of the campfire the end of the season seemed near. 
Brownie too often brought snowstorms to mind. He became doubly jaded, though I never rode him, and always left him in camp to feed and rest while I explored. The invincible bread business also troubled me again. The last mealy crumbs were consumed, and grass was becoming scarce even in the roughest rock piles, naturally inaccessible to sheep. One afternoon, as I gazed over the rolling bossy sequoia billows, stretching interminably southward, seeking a way and counting how far I might go without food, a rifle shot rang out sharp and clear. Marking the direction, I pushed gladly on, hoping to find some hunter who could spare a little food. Within a few hundred rods, I struck the track of a shod horse, which led to the camp of two Indian shepherds. One of them was cooking supper when I arrived. Glancing curiously at me, he saw that I was hungry, and gave me some mutton and bread, and said encouragingly, as he pointed to the west, "'Pretty soon, Indian come. Heap speak English.' Toward sundown, two thousand sheep beneath a cloud of dust came streaming through the grand sequoias to a meadow below the camp, and presently the English-speaking shepherd came in, to whom I explained my wants and what I was doing. Like most white men, he could not conceive how anything other than gold could be the object of such rambles as mine, and asked repeatedly whether I had discovered any mines. I tried to make him talk about trees and the wild animals, but unfortunately he proved to be a tame Indian from the Tule Reservation, had been to school, claimed to be civilized, and spoke contemptuously of wild Indians, and so, of course, his inherited instincts were blurred or lost. The big trees, he said, grew far south, for he had seen them in crossing the mountains from Porterville to Lone Pine. In the morning he kindly gave me a few pounds of flour and assured me that I would get plenty more at a sawmill on the South Fork if I reached it before it was shut down for the season. Of all the Tule Basin Forest, the section on the North Fork seemed the finest, surpassing, I think, even the giant forest of the Coway. Southward from here, though the width and general continuity of the belt is well sustained, I thought I could detect a slight falling off in the height of the trees and in closeness of growth. All the basin was swept by swarms of hoofed locusts, the southern part over and over again, until not a leaf within reach was left on the wettest bogs, the outer edges of the thorniest chaparral beds, or even on the young conifers, which unless under the stress of dire famine, sheep never touch. Of course, Brownie suffered, though I made diligent search for grassy, sheep-proof spots. Turning him loose one evening on the side of a carex bog, he dolefully prospected the desolate neighborhood, without finding anything that even a starving mule could eat. Then, utterly discouraged, he stole up behind me while I was bent over on my knees making a fire for tea, and in a pitiful mixture of bray and nay, begged for help. It was a mighty touching prayer, and I answered it as well as I could, with half of what was left of a cake made from the last of the flour given me by the Indians, hastily passing it over my shoulder and saying, "'Yes, poor fellow, I know, but soon you'll have plenty.' Tomorrow down we go to alfalfa and barley, speaking to him as if he were human, as through stress of trouble plainly he was. After eating his portion of bread he seemed content, for he said no more, but patiently turned away to gnaw leafless ceanothus stubs. 
such clinging confiding dependence after all our scrambles and adventures together was very touching and i felt conscience-stricken for having led him so far in so rough and desolate a country man says lord bacon is the god of the dog so also he is of the mule and many other dependent fellow-mortals next morning i turned westward determined to force a way straight to pasture letting sequoia wait fortunately ere we had struggled down through half a mile of chaparral we heard a mill whistle for which we gladly made a bee-line at the sawmill we both got a good meal then taking the dusty lumber road pursued our way to the lowlands the nearest good pasture i counted might be thirty or forty miles away but scarcely had we gone ten when i noticed a little log cabin a hundred yards or so back from the road and a tall man straight as a pine standing in front of it observing us as we came plodding down through the dust seeing no sign of grass or hay i was going past without stopping when he shouted travelin then drawing nearer where have you come from i didn't notice you go up i replied that i had come through the woods from the north looking at the trees oh then you must be john muir halt you're tired come and rest and i'll cook for you then i explained that i was tracing the sequoia belt that on account of sheep my mule was starving and therefore must push on to the lowlands no no he said that corral over there is full of hay and grain turn your mule into it i don't own it but the fellow who does is hauling lumber and it'll be all right he's a white man come and rest how tired you must be the big trees don't go much farther south no how i know the country up there have hunted all over it come and rest and let your little doggone rat of a mule rest how in heavens did you get him across the canyons roll him or carry him he's poor but he'll get fat and i'll give you a horse and go with you up the mountains and while you're looking at the trees i'll go a-hunting it'll be a short job for the end of the big trees is not far of course i stopped no true invitation is ever declined he had been hungry and tired himself many a time in the rocky mountains as well as in the sierra now he owned a band of cattle and lived alone his cabin was about eight by ten feet the door at one end a fireplace at the other and a bed on one side fastened to the logs leading me in without a word of mean apology he made me lie down on the bed then reached under it brought forth a sack of apples and advised me to keep chawing at them until he got supper ready finer braver hospitality i never found in all this good world so often called selfish next day with hardy easy alacrity the mountaineer procured horses prepared and packed provisions and got everything ready for an early start the following morning well mounted we pushed rapidly upon the south fork of the river and soon after noon were among the giants once more on the divide between the tool and deer creek a central camp was made and the mountaineer spent his time in deer hunting while with provisions for two or three days i explored the woods and in accordance with what i had been told soon reached the southern extremity of the belt on the south fork of deer creek to make sure i searched the woods a considerable distance south of the last deer creek grove passed over into the basin of the kern and climbed several high points commanding extensive views over the sugar pine woods 
without seeing a single sequoia crown in all the wide expanse to the southward on the way back to camp however i was greatly interested in a grove i discovered on the east side of the kern river divide opposite the north fork of deer creek the height of the pass where the species crossed over is about seven thousand feet and i heard of still another grove whose waters drain into the upper kern opposite the middle fork of the two it appears therefore that though the sequoia belt is two hundred and sixty miles long most of the trees are on a section to the south of king's river only about seventy miles in length but though the area occupied by the species increases so much to the southward there is but little difference in the size of the trees a diameter of twenty feet and a height of two hundred and seventy-five is perhaps about the average for anything like mature and favorably situated trees specimens twenty-five feet in diameter are not rare and a good many approach a height of three hundred feet occasionally one meets a specimen thirty feet in diameter and rarely one that is larger the majestic stump on king's river is the largest i saw and measured on the entire trip careful search around the boundaries of the forests and groves and in the gaps of the belt failed to discover any trace of the former existence of the species beyond its present limits on the contrary it seems to be slightly extending its boundaries for the outstanding stragglers occasionally met a mile or two from the main bodies are young instead of old monumental trees ancient ruins and the ditches and root bowls the big trunks make in falling were found in all the groves but none outside of them we may therefore conclude that the area covered by the species has not been diminished during the last eight or ten thousand years and probably not at all in post-glacial times for admitting that upon those areas supposed to have been once covered by sequoia every tree may have fallen and that fire and the weather have left not a vestige of them many of the ditches made by the fall of the ponderous trunks weighing five hundred to nearly a thousand tons and the bowls made by their upturned roots would remain visible for thousands of years after the last remnants of the trees had vanished some of these records would doubtless be effaced in a comparatively short time by the inwashing of sediments but no inconsiderable part of them would remain enduringly engraved on the flat ridge tops almost wholly free from such action in the northern groves the only ones that at first came under the observation of students there are but few seedlings and young trees to take the places of the old ones therefore the species was regarded as doomed to speedy extinction as being only an expiring remnant vanquished in the so-called struggle for life and shoved into its last strongholds in moist glens where conditions are exceptionally favorable but the majestic continuous forests of the south end of the belt create a very different impression here as we have seen no tree in the forest is more enduringly established nevertheless it is oftentimes vaguely said that the sierra climate is drying out and that this oncoming constantly increasing drought will of itself surely extinguish king sequoia though sections of woodring show that there has been no appreciable change of climate during the last forty centuries 
furthermore that sequoia can grow and is growing on as dry ground as any of its neighbors or rivals we have seen proved over and over again why then it will be asked are the big tree groves always found on well-watered spots simply because big trees give rise to streams it is a mistake to suppose that the water is the cause of the groves being there on the contrary the groves are the cause of the water being there the roots of this immense tree fill the ground forming a sponge which hoards the bounty of the clouds and sends it forth in clear perennial streams instead of allowing it to rush headlong in short-lived destructive floods evaporation is also checked and the air kept still in the shady sequoia depths while thirsty robber winds are shut out since then it appears that sequoia can and does grow on as dry ground as its neighbors and that the greater moisture found with it is an effect rather than a cause of its presence the notions as to the former greater extension of the species and its near approach to extinction based on its supposed dependence on greater moisture are seen to be erroneous indeed all my observations go to show that in case of prolonged drought the sugar pines and firs would die before sequoia again if the restricted and irregular distribution of the species be interpreted as the result of the desiccation of the range then instead of increasing in individuals toward the south where the rainfall is less it should diminish if then its peculiar distribution has not been governed by superior conditions of soil and moisture by what has it been governed several years before i made this trip i noticed that the northern groves were located on those parts of the sierra soil belt that were first laid bare and opened to preemption when the ice sheet began to break up into individual glaciers and when i was examining the basin of the san joaquin and trying to account for the absence of sequoia when every condition seemed favorable for its growth it occurred to me that this remarkable gap in the belt is located in the channel of the great ancient glacier of the san joaquin and king's river basins which poured its frozen floods to the plain fed by the snows that fell on more than fifty miles of summit peaks of the range constantly brooding on the question i next perceived that the great gap in the belt to the northward forty miles wide between the stanislaus and the tulum groves occurs in the channel of the great stanislaus and tulum glacier and that the smaller gap between the merced and the mariposa groves occurs in the channel of the smaller merced glacier the wider the ancient glacier the wider the gap in the sequoia belt while the groves and forests attain their greatest development in the Kaway and the Tule river basins just where owing to topographical conditions the region was first cleared and warmed while protected from the main ice rivers that flowed past to right and left down the kings and kern valleys in general where the ground on the belt was first cleared of ice there the sequoia now is and where at the same elevation in time the ancient glaciers lingered there the sequoia is not what the other conditions may have been which enabled the sequoia to establish itself upon these oldest and warmest parts of the main soil belt i cannot say 
i might venture to state however that since the sequoia forests present a more and more ancient and long-established aspect to the southward the species was probably distributed from the south toward the close of the glacial period before the arrival of other trees about this branch of the question however there is at present much fog but the general relationship we have pointed out between the distribution of the big trees and the ancient glacial system is clear and when we bear in mind that all the existing forests of the sierra are growing on comparatively fresh moraine soil and that the range itself has been recently sculptured and brought to light from beneath the ice mantle of the glacial winter then many lawless mysteries vanish and harmonies take their place but notwithstanding all the observed phenomena bearing on the post-glacial history of this colossal tree point to the conclusion that it never was more widely distributed on the sierra since the close of the glacial epoch that its present forests are scarcely past prime if indeed they have reached prime that the post-glacial day of the species is probably not half done yet when from a wider outlook the vast antiquity of the genus is considered and its ancient richness in species and individuals comparing our sierra giant and sequoia sempervirens of the coast the only other living species with the many fossil species already discovered and described by here and lescore some of which flourished over large areas around the arctic circle and in europe and our own territories during tertiary and cretaceous times then indeed it becomes plain that our two surviving species restricted to narrow belts within the limits of california are mere remnants of the genus both as to species and individuals and that they probably are verging to extinction but the verge of a period beginning in cretaceous times may have a breadth of tens of thousands of years not to mention the possible existence of conditions calculated to multiply and re-extend both species and individuals no unfavorable change of climate so far as i can see no disease but only fire and the axe and the ravages of flocks and herds threaten the existence of these noblest of god's trees in nature's keeping they are safe but through man's agency destruction is making rapid progress while in the work of protection only a beginning has been made the mariposa grove belongs to and is guarded by the state the general grant and sequoia national parks established ten years ago are efficiently guarded by a troop of cavalry under the direction of the secretary of the interior so also are the small tulum and merced groves which are included in the yosemite national park while a few scattered patches and fringes scarce at all protected though belonging to the national government are in the sierra forest reservation perhaps more than half of all the big trees have been sold and are now in the hands of speculators and mill men even the beautiful little calaveras grove of ninety trees so historically interesting from its being the first discovered is now owned together with the much larger south or stanislaus grove by a lumber company far the largest and most important section of the protected big trees is in the grand sequoia national park now easily accessible by stage from visalia 
it contains seven townships and extends across the whole breadth of the magnificent kawea basin but large as it is it should be made much larger its natural eastern boundary is the high sierra and the northern and southern boundaries and the kings and kern rivers and thus including the sublime scenery on the headwaters of these rivers and perhaps nine-tenths of all the big trees in existence private claims cut and blotch both of the sequoia parks as well as all the best of the forests every one of which the government should gradually extinguish by purchase as it readily may for none of these holdings are of much value to their owners thus as far as possible the grand blunder of selling would be corrected the value of these forests in storing and dispensing the bounty of the mountain clouds is infinitely greater than lumber or sheep to the dwellers of the plain dependent on irrigation the big tree leaving all its higher uses out of the count is a tree of life a never-failing spring sending living water to the lowlands all through the hot rainless summer for every grove cut down a stream is dried up therefore all california is crying save the trees of the fountains nor judging by the signs of the times is it likely that the cry will cease until the salvation of all that is left of sequoia gigantia is sure End of chapter 9, section 20